This episode of the Doctors of Running podcast is sponsored by Running Warehouse. Summer is all about logging miles and gearing up for the busy fall racing season. New daily trainers from Hoka, Skechers, Adidas, and more are ready to help you tackle your training. The Hoka Clifton 9 has been a favorite of the team in 2023. The shoe still provides the max cushion and lightweight feel of its predecessors with a responsive new midsole and surprisingly generous upper. For those looking for something soft and fun, the new Skechers Go Run Ride 11 and Max Road 6 feature one of the squishiest new foams of the year with the introduction of Hyperburst Ice. And finally, for those looking for a shoe with all the bells and whistles as you prepare for fast marathon miles, the revamped Adidas Boston 12 provides a return to form with a new Lightstrike 2.0 midsole that helps make the newest Boston feel lighter and softer than ever before. You can find all these new trainers and more at runningwarehouse.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Doctors of Running podcast, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and science of running and the stuff that we put on our feet. Today, I'm hosting, my name's Nathan, and we have Dr. Matthew Klein, as well as two amazing guests that we've had on the show before, but now we're all in one space together. We have Andrea Paulson and Corey Hoffman from Saucony. They're here to help us talk about the development of Power Run HG, as well as the upcoming Kinvara Pro. And so we are so thrilled to have these people with us. We've gotten to know them pretty well nerding out on footwear uh, and science and production and all these different things. We have a very like mind when it comes to how we look at shoes. So it's always fun to get in the same room and talk about this. So Andrea and Corey, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Super happy to be back. We, um, thanks for having us. Absolutely. We're pumped to have you. So before we have them introduce themselves a little bit further, a couple of reminders. First, we've ha- like I said, we've had them on the podcast before. So if you want to hear uh, Andrea and Matt go into a conversation about uh, materials and foam properties, you can check out episode number 95. And Corey was on talking about running economy as well as biomechanics stuff in episode 96. So you can go back and hear them talk about uh, kind of those specific topics. And then today, again, we're going to get this deep dive into these materials. Before we do that, our subjective for the day, I, we we just want to hear because we have people from Saucony here with us. Tell us what your favorite Saucony shoe is, so you can drop that in the comments below. Um, and we're just curious to hear. They've come out. They they produce a l- pretty large range of footwear. So curious to hear. Um, as you, as you can kind of tell from what the Canvara is and what the Canvara Pro is, there's a big range of the types of shoes being put out. So curious. So if you're if you're listening on YouTube, you can comment below. Um, feel free to share what your favorite Saucony shoe is. Um, so. Andrea, uh, could you just introduce yourself a little bit for us um, and for everybody who may not have heard your previous episode? Yeah, for sure. I um, I spent a lot of time last time talking about what I do. I, I think I maybe this time I'll talk a little bit about who I am. Uh, but I, I do. I lead the product engineering team and the human performance and innovation lab at Saucony. Um, product engineering covers everything from technical blueprints, CAD builds, management of molded parts, lasts, um, the R&D and innovation work around new midsole materials and manufacturing modernization. I said all of this last time. Same thing on human performance side. Um, I'm going to let Corey dig a little deeper there, uh, but it's the physical lab where we do all of the mechanical, biomechanical, and, and personal preference testing across all of our product. Uh, the way I like to explain it is is that engineering creates and iterates, and then human performance investigates and then validates. Um, But so more personally, uh, I've been with Saucony uh, almost 20 years now. 
So it's it's not my first job out of school, but it is uh, my first in the industry. <laughs> um, my degree is in the exercise sciences, and but I'd, I'd say my background is in product development and engineering. I actually started uh, in product testing in the lab um, and then moved into development for about 10 years before I took over engineering and then uh, eventually the lab as well. Um, I think in the footwear industry, though, it, it's a place where a lot of talent um, has degrees or backgrounds and something unrelated to their job titles, which is great. I, I think it brings diversity and, and adds creative perspective. Uh, but I, I think I can think of a PLM that has a degree in history. Um, that is not the case for the lab engineering teams. Um, mostly everyone has a targeted education in a similar field like kinesiology or ergonomics, movement science, biomedical engineering, um, mechanical engineering. It, it's fairly specialized. The reason I say all of this is I, I like to be really honest in these discussions. I do not have an MS. I don't have a PhD. I don't even have an MBA. Um, you guys know I'm, I'm married to a DPT though. So that's probably good for like one transfer credit. <laughs> um, yeah. What I do I like have is, is 20 years of technical shoemaking experience, um, dozens of overseas manufacturing trips and a, a whole heck of a lot of failed projects um, that never saw the light of day and, and maybe a few that have done okay. Um, so that that's probably the best recap for my experience. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. And Corey, what about you? Well, I don't know how anyone can follow that, but <laughs> um, so uh, for, for those of you who haven't listened to the last episode with me, my name is Corey Hoffman. I'm a performance engineer in the lab, uh, working very closely with uh, Andrea and the rest of the engineering team. Um, my background uh, is in uh, biomedical engineering, where I studied at TCNJ, like one of your uh, colleagues at the Doctors of Running. Um, I studied uh, biomechanics and mechanical engineering at Penn State. Um, sorry, Nate. <laughs> um, yeah, I still, I forgot about that part. I forgot. Yeah, Otherwise, we may not have had you I back I think that on. blindsided you last time. I'm not sure if you knew that about me, but it's okay. Um, yeah, I didn't. Oh, you was pretty stunned. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so I, I, I didn't, um, I've, I've been in the footwear industry now for two years, um, all at Saucony. Um, before that, I had a couple of different roles. Um, in um, mostly kind of bridging the gap between engineering and uh, research. I've worked for a commercial um, fitness equipment manufacturer uh, for multiple different ones. Um, and also I've worked for an engineering consulting group um, analyzing and investigating uh, exoskeleton design and use uh, for the Department of Defense. So, so I've had, um, uh, I've, I've been very fortunate throughout my career to have a lot of um, interesting applications of the same kind of core fundamental scientific principles of, of biomechanics and engineering, um, just kind of applying them to different uh, realms. Um, so uh, really, really fortunate to be where I am. Um, really love working on the team at Saucony and uh, really excited to be here to chat more about what we do. Awesome. Well, again, we always record these on Sunday nights. Today is also Father's Day, which I know Father's Day means a lot of things to different people, whether if it's good or bad. I know it hits people in different ways. Um, but either way, for, for y'all to give up a Sunday night um, on a day where people spend time together and with family, we're just thankful that you gave up that time to be with us. So excited to go into this conversation. And where we want to start is talking about a foam, talking about Power Run HG. Um, so for those of you who haven't heard about Power Run HG before, where you saw it debuted was in their uh, Saucony Endorphin Elite, which was a new kind of 
Well, I hate to, I'm always scared to say this in front of the people who created the shoe, you know, like where we see it as this, you know, like elite long distance racing shoe that's got a lot of stack underneath. Um, it has a pretty aggressive rocker geometry that's different than the other models that we've seen from them, including the Endorphin Pro 2 and the Endorphin Pro 3. And so it's constructed a little bit different. Um, it's got a very unique upper kind of, um, you know, trying to minimize minimize as much weight as possible through that upper while still keeping it secure. And then, um, obviously, the big part is the foam. So they have this new foam. It's called HG. And we just want to talk a little bit more about kind of where this foam came from, but maybe a place to start is just understanding kind of the history of the development of foam in general and what does research and development look like for that, uh, just kind of that realm of things. Yeah, I, I think um, I'd like to say first that uh, the last couple of your episodes that have posted, they're going to dovetail really nicely in, into, into this conversation, at least I hope, right? Um, so getting, <laughs> getting right into it, right? Um, if you've heard me t- speak at all about product in, in the last five or six years, I, it's been my perspective that the future of the running industry lies entirely within polymer science and, and midsole cushioning technology. Uh, the last time, last year I was on we, this podcast, we talked about super foam and I put those in quotations, right? And uh, what it is, what quantifies it as such and how prolific it could become. And uh, I think you're starting to see that future arrive now. Um, every brand has that <laughs> new and improved midsole technology and, and, and that gap analysis between a super shoes, super foam, and inline technology is closing. I, I think probably at an incredible right, rate. I, you know, I'm, I, I'd add that. So I, I think for today we'll get, we'll get into the weeds on Power Run HG, and it's in more detail about foam testing and R and D. But I, I think, it, like you said, Nathan, it'd be helpful to know why it, you might not care about Power Run HG. You right. might not care about the Endorphin Elite the other two shoes that we released with that foam, um, it might not be the shoe for you. You might not even believe a word I have to say about all of these benefits and, and think it's all marketing <laughs> BS. I swear it's not, but I, I understand your perspective there. But what you should care about is what it means for the industry. Um, the work we do on these super shoes, again, in quotations, super foams, uh, the upfront, upfront costs, um, the research to make these pinnacle products is what often, and I'll say that again, often drives the and encourages innovation downstream. But if you think about it, the EVA of today is super foam of the early 2000s. That's sort of a Corey quote. I'm going to steal it, though. Um, it's it's, <laughs> like it's it. that much better. <laughs> um, so, you mm. know, I, I'd be so bold to say what's undeniable ab- about these foams Um they're more, we'll call it protective. And I say this um, all the time. I, after a marathon, you see far fewer people hobbling down a set of stairs backwards. And, and why is that? It's, it's the shoes. They yeah. be so bold, right? And I'm not trying to stir things up between thens and nows. Yeah, nutrition is better. Yeah, physical care is better. I, I sure assume that like training tactics are better. Um, but, but footwear innovation cannot be discounted or or discredited when it comes to wear and tear on the body if miles are equal right so we don't, I don't want to go down the injury rabbit injury rate rabbit hole um, that's a whole separate topic for you, for you um, but but just <laughs> isolating the advantages of midsole cushioning why wouldn't you want 
that in everyday product. So when we start talking about Power Run HG, what is Power Run HG? It's a, it's a PIBA-based, supercritically foamed, high-resiliency midsole. Obviously, if you aren't a chemist, that means next to nothing. That means, yeah. <laughs> so, so PEBA, P-E-B-A, is, is the base thermoplastic elastomer resin that, that we build the foam out of. And I, I'm sure people are gaining familiarity with this at this point, right? Like polyether block amide or amide. Um, and it's very lightweight, super strong, yet incredibly flexible energetic material. Super critically foamed refers to the manufacturing process. And if we, so we, what we do, we have to take this hard, rigid starting form and you have to make it a soft, pliable, finished part. And to do that, you saturate the PIBA compound with a supercritical fluid, which is a phase somewhere between gas and a liquid, right? Eighth grade earth science taught you wrong. There are more than three phases. Um, you do that inside <laughs> an autoclave, so a pressure cooker or a vacuum oven. So, so you heat it, and then as, you, as pressure is induced, the part grows, right? And it draws in that supercritical gas. And then at vitrification, uh, stabilization or solidifying, um, you left with this midsole that's very molecularly consistent. So, so micromolecularly consistent, actually. So like very, very small, tightly formed bubbles. And that combination is what gets, uh, of PIBA and the SEF process, is what gets you this super high resilient foam. Now, where are we going next? Resilience. Resilient. Yeah. yeah, probably, yeah, probably <laughs> resilient, right? Uh, yeah. So what's resiliency? Uh, Matt and David, you guys did an awesome whole episode on this, right? Like exploring that word. So I'm not going to belabor that point, but it's it's semantics, right? It's it's an adjective game, like pop, rebound, return, bounce, responsiveness, springiness, yeah, responsiveness. That's that's resiliency. So the way we test for it, and and I went into this a little bit last time. We have an Instron machine. It's a tabletop piston um, that precisely measures measures the dynamic material properties. And we impact test the foam mechanically. So we load the material and then we unload the material. And we look at the difference between the deformation, which we'll, we'll say absorption, and then the rebound, which is, we'll call that energy return. Right. So if you math out those two differences, you get energy efficiency of the foam. And that's the 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 energy efficiency of Power Run HG is 95%. Now, I, I do want to clear up one thing. Um, the difference between impacting the foam alone and then the finished shoe, when I say 95%, I'm talking about the foam. Um, because when you add in an upper okay. and an outsole, if there's a plate, any of the shoe construction, that, that can change the outcome of this test. So it's, it's also super important to remember... Uh, that the foam efficiency and the shoe efficiency improvements, uh, I would say while correlated, do not ensure better human efficiency, which improvements, which is running economy, right? So I, I just, I, I know in listening to previous episodes, like, I think that's a, it's an important point to focus on. Yeah. 
So, Matt, did you that have was a something? Lot. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hand up for a second. <laughs> no, it's great. I, th- I think one of the key things that people might forget, because we like to think about things in isolation, but this is a system, just like human beings, right? You can't think about the shoe in isolation because you're going, you need to talk about the, the whole human being and how they as an individual react, not going, yeah, this shoe says X percent imp- like improvement economy. It's like that might be totally different based on that unique individual, but also thinking about what are all the components of the shoe, be it outsole, midsole, insole, which I got to give credit because you have um, had a lot of shoes recently where you've really done some great work with the insoles, where the insoles used to be just pure, like that was kind of an afterthought. And now we're seeing some of the same materials you use in the midsole actually put into the insole as well. Because you're like, yeah, this is the first thing that that people interact with when they land. And that actually makes a huge impact, we know from literature on perception of the ride so which is also important to think about that was me also going too long i'm sorry <laughs> so i i have some questions too so one just to clarify too just for those who may not have heard an episode on the idea of impact testing you're basically saying that the like the compression of the foam from the impact or let's say it went 100 millimeters just that's never like what actually happens let's say it went 100 millimeters maybe that is i don't know what their energy return for this shoe would be, it came back 95 and then there's five that did not come back. Or is that not how that's, uh, how that's quantified or how that's made sense of? No, not, not quite. Um, so compliance. So when we say compliance, we basically mean deformation and and this gets into the difference between elastic and viscoelastic materials and Young's law and stress strain curves. But I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole, but like stress strain curves are, um, they create a hysteresis. So if you, if you load, if you load and then unload a material, all right, if you're listening, imagine a banana, okay? And the backside (laughs) of the banana is, is loading. And then the belly side of the banana is unloading. Um, the space between the loaded and unloaded values, so so how skinny your banana is, is the amount of energy lost. So a skinny banana is very efficient. So if there's five percent in between the 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 curves, that's ninety five percent efficient. So that, then we start getting into dynamic compression set and what all that means, and we sort of fly off the backswing. But d- did that answer? No, I think that that's portion? exactly what I was hoping to go into because yeah. I think it's hard to conceptualize the idea of. If I compress the foam and it only comes back a certain amount, wouldn't it just flatten out after 20 steps? Um, so it's not how much the foam is coming back. It's that hysteresis curve. So that, I think that's really, that's, that's helpful. The other question I had in terms of development of power and HG, you said it has this 95% energy return. Um, what did your, what does power run PB have and how are they made differently that allows that to happen? Yeah, it, that's, um, it's an excellent question. So we, I think we publish PB at, you know, just under 90%. Uh, and PB is a super critically foamed be- beaded <laughs> polymer. So, yep. uh, so you take the resin, you extrude it through a tube and you create, um, and then you chop it into little beads. And then those beads are super critically foamed and then uh, molded together. So you have this extra skin that you get from the beads. It's also, um, the, I guess, getting into one of the critiques on PB, um, I'm sorry, critiques on HG is probably a good way to explain the difference. Um, sure. One of the critiques on, on HG is that it, that it feels a little firm. 
Um, and, and that has to do with the mechanics of the viscoelastic properties. Uh, this is going to sound like, this is probably going to sound like nonsense, but, but in polymer <laughs> science, there's a big difference between hardness and stiffness. And I, yeah. I know that sounds ridiculous if, if you're just a lay person, but like hardness is the topical surface deformation measurement. So durometer. And, and there's a reason why you don't hear many of us talk about durometer anymore. It's, it's almost irrelevant. Um, it's, it's more of a byproduct of modern, these modern foams. Um, I swear on my parents' ashes, like Pipa HG is soft. It's like a low 40s durometer. It is not a hard foam. Huh. Um, yeah. So, but however, I, I you know I I can I can understand and I hear why some folks might find it stiff, and and perceive that as firm. So stiffness is the elastic deformation under load. So the the inverse of stiffness is compliance. So I'll, I'll repeat that. The inverse of stiffness is compliance. So, so this really shoots us right into the nuance of, of human biomechanics and gate specifics and pace and, and frankly, shoe design, um, you know, geometry and construction. So when, when we play with the forces and contact time and energy efficiency, it can dramatically change the perception underfoot. So how people perceive stiffness or compliance is, is incredibly personal and probably worthy of a, a, a whole nother episode, but, sure. but, that's, but that's why we have separate compounds. You know, if, if PIBA HG or the elite geometry doesn't work for you individually, we have other options that should, like PB, which is more compliant. Um, and you have to remember in our positions as, as footwear manufacturers, it's, it's easy to take our existing molds and put different materials into them and see what changes for the human. Like that's how we test it. So, yeah. So, so then with the, and if I guess either of you can take these questions too, cause I'm starting to dip into some of that stuff that you might see in the lab, Corey. So when you had this new foam, this HG and maybe the first step you did is you put it in an existing mold that you already had or something. How did you end up with the geometry that you have? Because it is from, from what we can perceive here, like a later stage rocker, a little bit more sharp angle here. Um, how did you end up on the geometry that you did and what were you seeing between kind of like the types of people who benefited from one or the other? Or is that part of the testing process? It's, it's definitely part of the testing process. It's a, uh, we did it a little differently. We, uh, we backed into HG, not into PB and uh, not out of PB. Uh, so we, we mechanically tested HG and found out how spectacular it was. So what we wanted to do um, was create a different ride profile. Um, it's not just about using and leveraging an awesome foam. It's, it's also about creating different rides and different experiences for different runners. Um, the, the slotted plate is much more accommodating uh, from landing lateral to moving through stance and, and <clears throat> excuse me, mid stance and out. So um, that provides a different ride characteristic than a solid plate in the pro. Um, the materials, obviously, as we just talked about, that's going to have a different perception underfoot. Um, the aggressive toe spring um, is is definitely not for everyone. I would say I think uh, some people love it. Um, I sort of wish David was on the call. <laughs> I <laughs> yeah, do too. Matt does too. Like yeah, um, but but um, some people feel like it, it's not in the right position. You're not on the right. It, it's not on the um, the correct cadence with you. That's I shouldn't use that word, but yeah, 
Um, and Corey, please feel free to jump in on the testing side if you'd like. Also, Corey, before you jump in, just to just to fill this in for um, for David, you know, y'all created a shoe that he chose over the Alpha Fly, which we joked at him all the time. Like that dude, like literally, he would tell us on a Thursday, "I'm gonna race in X shoe," and then he's like. Yeah, I just put the Alpha Fly in my bag just in case, and I laced him up, and he'll race in the Alpha Fly anyway. So the fact that he laced up that shoe for a marathon, and he did PR in that race and all that stuff, he had a, he had a good day. Like that does say something from like an experience for a guy like him. Um, that that is, and and I I haven't ran in the Alpha Fly, but from a compliance feeling standpoint, those have got to be very different underfoot experiences. Matt, you've you've ran in both, um, so we don't have to belabor that, but. There's there's David's presence with us. It was him <laughs> choosing this shoe for his marathon. We were um, quite proud. We will say yeah. that. <laughs> that's cool. I, I so, will. I would like to go back for a quick second because Andrew, I, th- I think you did a great job talking about the difference between why durometer really isn't frequently discussed versus something like compliance or stiffness, and it's the, kind of the same. The analogy I would use for that is why we talk about static, like posture versus active movement. We tell students and others going, yeah, sorry, like a lot of those static measurements that people take, be it foot scan or stuff like that, that really doesn't give you vital like product information about what the human being or even the product is going to do versus the compliance or the stiffness actually looks at what is happening when you're loading this thing, which is much more functional, which is – and things can vary completely. Durometer and compliance, i.e. stiffness – can be related. They can also be completely unrelated and not related. Just like static posture often doesn't relate to what you'll see with movement. It's a nice place to start to go. I wonder what's going to happen, but it's not the final picture. You have to look at things moving or under load, which is why some people want a thing that because it's easier to measure drama, right? You can push into the shoe, but you're not loading it. It's way harder to measure stiffness, right? That takes much more sophisticated machinery and things like that. But it's this exact same concept i think going you got to look at this while people are moving under load because that's more functional yeah and at different paces too you know we, you yeah. might love the shoe at a, at a slow pace but you might not love it at a fast pace or, or vice versa well yeah more on that later yeah and it, it might even be worth just to differentiate um for the listeners um the difference between um stiffness meaning the uh, essentially if you imagine in your head the banana that Andrea already drew in your head uh, a couple minutes ago, um, <laughs> where uh, essentially the slope at any point along that banana can be considered the stiffness. Um, but it's probably worth differentiating between that and the actual amount of force it takes to bend the entire shoe. Um, so one is a kind of shoe slash geometry property, right? You know, how much force does it take to bend? For the listeners, I just picked up a shoe and bent it uh, lengthwise <laughs> um, versus the uh, material property of the midsole itself. So actually, or the foam, you know, generically any foam where you uh, apply a force to it and look at the amount it displaces um, and the ratio essentially of how much it displaces for the amount of force you apply um, would be. Because some, some things get some things get stiffer in that sense the faster you load them. Is that... Is that an accurate statement for some prop, some materials? Some materials, yeah, not all. We, but. So it'd be clear to differentiate what the how your shoe bends. That the term is longitudinal bending stiffness versus the midsole stiffness is a different concept, and people need to be aware of that. Right, I think that's why we use compliance more often. 
That makes sense. Yes. Um, so, Corey, are there any things when you've seen this tested in the lab in terms of preferences or mechan- biomechanics or running economy? Um, what sort of things have you just observations that you've made um, when testing this foam? Um, and if there's certain specifics you can't go into, we get that. So, um, <laughs> don't worry, my curious. boss, my boss is on with me. So, <laughs> if I start to divulge too much, I'm sure she'll stop me. <laughs> Like, why did Corey's screen go blank? <laughs> I mean, um, we worked out hand signals before the call. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so uh, testing, um, it's interesting. Um, so certainly the Elite uh, it tests uh, remarkably well uh, in the lab for a, variety, uh, for, for a variety of paces, for a variety of our testers. Um, yeah, but uh, it, interestingly, uh, it's not 100% of our testers um, test, you know, quote unquote better. And I'll say better as in um, better uh, running economy in the elite relative to uh, <clears throat> a handful of other our other shoes, um, including uh, Pro 3 and even Speed 3. Um, so it really is uh, highly uh, user dependent. Um, but I will tell you for a large percentage of people, um, running economy will be superior in the elite uh, relative to a variety of our um, similarly um, designed product. Hmm. Have there been any patterns that have emerged with that uh, with it within your product, or has it been too too hard to nail down what those variables are? That's a great question. Um, I'm not sure I would still have a job if I nailed the pattern down exactly. <laughs> um, but um, uh, there, there may be some inklings of um, of trends, but uh, I think we'll need closer to 8 billion data points than the, what we have now to, to really land on that. And that's honestly super smart. Um, just as I'm processing like your ability to answer that question, there's a lot more that you've observed. How smart it is to start talking about those things makes a difference because we um, even, so I work, uh, help, I help at a DPT program and we talk about admissions and we talk about how do we, you know, do that well holistically and all this stuff and finding the right amount of data points to make admissions decisions. If you start using just like, oh, in last year's cohort, we noticed these things. If you've got four people that fall into a certain trend, <laughs> that's not enough to make a decision that could, you know, really change, you know, a direction of a whole industry or, you know, in this case, individuals who want to become PTs. So there's wisdom in waiting until you have 800,000 data points (laughs) or at least enough to create some power in, in the, in the decisions. So, okay. So it's funny y'all listen to our podcast, which still cracks me up. Um, but that means I can kind of reference back to a couple things from last time. But one of the questions that we did last week on the buy or sell episode was, should we get rid of EVA foam? And so, and, and throw, you know, this PIBA and all these super critical PIBA-based foams, should that be what we use for everyday stuff? When you all think about powering HG and what you have with it, what do you envision doing with that foam? Do you see it replacing your, you know, power run foam and getting rid of EVA? How does, how do y'all as a team conceptualize that question? Yeah, uh, that was a fun one. Um, no, we do not get we do not envision getting rid of, of EVA foams, p- partially because of what I mentioned before. EVA foams are pretty good. <laughs> you know, they they might not be ninety five percent efficient, but they're over. They're some of them can get 
pretty darn close. Um, and, and a lot of that is because they're not pure EVA. There's other stuff in them and the same manufacturing processes that you can it leverage for, for PIBAs and TPUs, you, you can also use in, in EVAs. So hard no, um, it, or yeah, hard no. <laughs> I was, I, I can't remember if buy is, a, uh, to <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, or if it's buy a no. Um, I would say, uh, you, you touched upon really good bullet points uh, in answering those questions too. Cost is a big part of it. PIBA is not inexpensive. Um, <laughs> Room-sized autoclaves are, are not the most efficient way of making foams. Uh, so there are a lot of reasons um, outside of the physical benefits of the foams to, to not discard the EVA or, or other materials. You know, it's, you know, we're abandoning PUs for different reasons, but um, the other the other thing is if used in combination, which I actually think was an answer to a different buy sell question further down the line. But yep. the the idea that if you can combine these materials and use them, spot target them, and and construction wise, it doesn't make sense to abandon something that is perfectly useful, especially at doing specific things. So um, that's my answer. Corey, any other thoughts on it? I, I don't disagree at all. Um, uh, you know, uh, I, I think you might've even mentioned this in the episode, but, um, there's a sustainability story and also a price story, um, for every single material. Um, and some of that could be related to, you know, how much carbon it takes to make the material, um, or to run the factory that makes the material. Um, but also could just be the durability of the shoe itself. Um, if you have to throw it in a landfill after hundred miles versus 400 miles, then, there's a, a big story there as well. So, um, you know, we like to think of it in terms of just one or two key properties, but there are dozens of properties that go into, you know, what, what makes the material or ultimately a product, you know, right for the right context. That makes me think of two questions actually really quick. One is, um, you know, from a durability standpoint, when it comes to something like HG versus some of the EVAs that you have, is there a dif difference that y'all notice there? Um, and what should we maybe expect from a foam like that to maintain those properties? And then the second one was, I'll, I guess I'll save the second one. That's a big enough question. Dur durability and HG. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it depends. And I, I know that's a horrible que answer to the question. Um, it depends on a lot of different things, right? Like it depends on you and, and your size and your gait characteristics and all of the things I know that you um, have discussed multiple times. But it also depends on how you make the foams. Um, you know, a, a bead foam is generally speaking more durable than a, a non-beaded foam. Um, it's That's not always the case. Uh TPUs are generally speaking more durable than PIBAs, which are generally speaking more durable than EVAs. That's not always the case. Uh, it, it really depends on a lot of different things. Uh, but generally speaking, the the number doesn't change for what we suggest you get out of your 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 mileage per shoe. So, like mileage in the Elite will be similar to your mileage in a Ride 16 from a from a foam property standpoint. Um, Correct. The the I would say that there is a um, there is a big difference in our beaded foams. They are far more durable. Uh, and so like your both both types of beaded foams that you have, you yeah. see that. Yes. Yeah. And Corey, do you 
do you feel comfortable talking a little bit about Power Run Plus? <laughs> um, only uncomfortable in that the results this are a, so mind-numbing mind <laughs> to, to believe. But um, yeah, we've, uh, so in particular, so uh, Triumph 20 slash 21 would um, have this midsole, so Power Run Plus. Um, and I think uh, Matt's even showing an example. Yeah, and you reviewed it recently. Yep. Um, yes, yeah, so um, we're... Uh, looking in particular at how to quantify how long the uh, this midsole will last and maintain its mechanical properties uh, over a prolonged uh, duration of running. Um, so we're we're investigating a couple of different ways to uh, mechanically impose the exact same amount of demand on the shoe over a prolonged period of time, um, and then measuring something about the mechanical properties before that test and then after that test so we could quantify something about the the, the decay and maybe we assume it's linear or you know non-linear but you know just to look at the difference um but we we are, are struggling to find a test that's long enough and abusive enough to actually result in a decay in the midsole properties of power run plus <laughs> Now, and, and I'm sure we have uh, <laughs> legal and marketing folks uh, from Sockety that are uh, sweating right now uh, as I'm saying this, but um, <laughs> hopefully it's it's uh, vague and generic enough that um, doesn't put us in any significant trouble. But yeah, we're uh, it's it's a remarkably durable foam in that it will maintain its uh, mechanical properties uh, over a very high level of abuse. Yeah, your outsole. Cool. I'll say your outsole and your upper will fail before your midsole does. In the in the power run plus situation, which is usually not the case, because it's usually the opposite. That for, not always right, but sometimes usually the midsole will flatten out long before the upper with some some people that can blow through the other ones quicker. Um, it's pretty cool. So you're using right now you're using the human test, right? So remind me the the device that you use that, and I should know this. The device that you have that where you test the compound properties. Or the uh, the like compliance is you just keep that thing pounding into the missile. That is called. Please remind me the the impactor or we we use an Instron for impact testing. Yeah, we call it in, impact testing. Yeah. So you're you're using the the variation on this test is the human component that when the impactor's been on so long that all the socket employees start using their PTO, you know that that okay, this clearly has. I'm just kidding. <laughs> You joke, but yeah. it is really yeah. annoying machine to sit near. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I remember I was like, dud, dud, dud. like, wow. Does does that yeah. ever get? There's like, a yes, restaurant gets, in yeah. below uh, that that room <laughs> yeah. that I'm sure hates us, but that's yeah. pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. Instead of giving a bad Yelp review, you just leave that on exactly like Amazing. for a couple of days. And we can't talk about it here, but there will be stuff coming from a sustainability side of stuff. I know it was previewed at yeah. the running event, so there's stuff out on it, but um, as it relates to this conversation. So it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of what's coming out and how that goes. So um, I wanted to ask kind of just the follow-up question, and then we're going to segue into our second part, um, talking about the the Kinvara Pro. But I, I want to ask, when it comes to HG, you're not selling out on EVA. That's going to stick around. Do you see taking the HG and using it in daily shoes, or do you think it's not really worth it for like a daily training shoe? Or how do you perceive that or that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think um, whether it's HG or PB, 
we have we have plans. I, I you know HG has some unique properties about it in in terms of manufacturing that that is going to probably keep it price wise out of um, some of the everyday product. Um, it's that's it's unreasonable at, at some perspective, um, but. I guess to sort of answer that question, I get asked, we get asked a lot, you know, is, is too much energy return a bad thing? Um, to, to which I always ask back, um, why, why would you want less? Why do you want less energy return? And if it's attenuation that you want or, or the reduction of force, you can have that without compromising energy return, right? I, I mean, physics-wise, you, you can't be absorbing energy and returning it at the same time. Um, Foam-wise, it, it can't be done. Corey and I were just talking about this on Friday. It's the second law of thermodynamics, right? Like if the foam isn't returning energy back to you, you are just losing it. It's It becomes heat. So, and that loss of material properties in, in running, it, it basically presents like running in sand. Uh, well, at least the, the extreme does. So if we can't f- physically make... a a return over 100%. We can. That's the laws of physics. And it can't be, you can't unload without the human dictating when, right? It has to be post stance phase, right? So it's literally on demand energy return. And that, that sounds pretty good to me. Let's, let's maximize it. So in terms of using it in everyday product, Saucony, we really focus on this term democratized innovation. If you're in our office for more than like a day, you're going to hear that phrase. We hammer it home um, because we don't want to str- we don't want to stray from it, honestly. And and I'll go on a slight tangent here, but like we make a lot of comparisons and, and metaphors around the automotive industry. I'm sure you guys have picked up on this over the, the years of talking to, to, to footwear people, but designers especially love a, a good car analogy. Um, <laughs> And maybe you've heard this one, but like everyone loves a race car, but we sell a lot more sedans. And that sometimes that holds true for even the teams uh, working on the product. Like everybody, everybody strives to work on the flashy new concept car, but like the the daily trainer is the biggest deal. It's the piece de resistance, right? Like that's your meat and potatoes. So again, why wouldn't we want to put these amazing foams into everyday products that you can benefit the most from them. Um, I would, I, w- I guess maybe the biggest adversary to, to, to super shoes, um, maybe, may, all right, maybe it's the second biggest adversary to super shoes is, is the, the folks feel that they're unapproachable, right? Like that somehow um, they're not for everyone. And perhaps maybe that was true at first. Um, there, there are a lot more options now, right? Like moreover, we, we have these lightweight, high responsive protective foams in everyday styles um, that are more accommodating with templates and, and more reasonable costs. So it's not just about running faster. It, it's it's about running more comfortably and, and reaching longer distances and uh, hell extent, if you're me, extending your running career um, and, and having quicker and easier recoveries. So that's, that's really what democratized innovation is. Um, so whether it's HG or it's PB or it's these these very um, uh, boutique EVAs, if you call them, uh, you know, this is probably the best place to segue to product talk with Corey because we have all of these great foams. So how did we, how do we, from scratch, 
design, engineer, test, uh, and validate, like let's call it a super shoe or, or super construction for that everyday runner at everyday paces. And I think that's going to answer your question entirely, Nathan. Oh, except Matt has a question. <laughs> totally. Matt, why don't you go and then I'll, yes. I, I, I will actually, Andrew, it's so interesting that you said that because that is exactly what I was about to reference. And I, we talked about this when we went and visited all of you going, yes, we know at that time, right, we were concerned that, you know, maybe people shouldn't be training in these all the time, right? They're, they're kind of tools, like so the race car analogy, right? You know, you, you're going to want to take the race car to the racetrack. It might not be the most appropriate thing to take to the grocery store, right? That's where the sedan, that kind of stuff. I got to hand it to Nathan, though, who said, said this much better than I did. And I think our concern then was we didn't know how people were going to spawn. We didn't know if they were going to – because it's such a drastically different thing than what was on the market then. He's like that that shift, I think, is what we're con- concerned about, because if you just went into one of those shoes and that's what you trained in. Yeah. Y- if you get used to it, you're going to be fine. It's the shifts back and forth where your body's really not ready for that change that we start to see things that we're concerned about. But now that the industry, all that stuff has bled in, people are going to be more used to it. So I think there's less concern now because. Like you said, we're seeing these boutique EVAs that are taking some of the same lessons learned. We're seeing some of these foams also in daily trainers. So at this point, it's like, I don't think there's as much concern just because now it's everywhere. Now that it's the norm, your bodies are going to be more used to it. Anybody coming in, that's going to be their experience, as opposed to you're going from a some of the older stiff EVAs to a quote-unquote super foam like that's a big shift and going back and forth and not being ready for some of the things that might be required of you with that is going to be different now when they're actually getting more similar and you're seeing this. So it's okay to have a racy uh, sedan now because that's what we've got. And you're seeing that even in the footwear industry where cars are adapting a lot of the race technology. Things are lighter. Things are way faster. Things are more streamlined and you're seeing that. And I think footwear is not any different. Oh, I think we I, could – I think t- – <laughs> Go ahead, Andrea. No, no, no. I was going to say that the, the <laughs> car to footwear analogies are deep. They run deep. <laughs> yeah. But this is a perfect time to segue. I, we do want to also spend some time talking about the shoe that's coming, the Kinvara Pro. Um, and curious to talk to you all about the development of the shoe because for something called Kinvara, it feels like it couldn't be any different than the Kinvara. So, can we first just start uh, kind of with the story behind like where this shoe came from and the idea came from um, and why is it called Kinvara Pro, but why does it have Kinvara in it? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And I think a question that will uh, be asked a lot and hopefully I can point them to this uh, episode um, in the future. <laughs> so I hope I just, <laughs> if I say it once and it's really great, then it'll be the last time. Um, but uh, I, I think the the story honestly starts back in call it 2009 2010. Um, it's when I started grad school, so I just graduated from uh, the College of New Jersey, and I was moving on to Penn State to study biomechanics. And it was a really exciting time uh, in to be in biomechanics research uh, for a couple of different reasons. And one was because of uh, maybe two different uh, publications that came out right around the same time. Uh, one is Born to Run. Um, and if, if any of the listeners um, haven't uh, had a chance to read it, uh, it's an interesting read. And uh, also a publication uh, in this little academic journal called Nature um, 
by Dan Lieberman uh, and foot strike patterns and collision forces in uh, habitually shot and barefoot runners. Um, so between those two, it was maybe not the first time, but at least the first time in, in my academic life that you know biomechanics had become kind of popular and people were, it, it, it had permeated through academia and into kind of popular culture in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, it, it was an interesting time uh, for me because, you know, that's around the time where I really started to get into running. And, um, you know, it was pretty much the reason that I'm here today is because of the original Saucony Canvara. Um, and it was, you know, a, a perfect example of what Andrea just mentioned, um, democratized innovation. Um, so it was right around this time, you know, everyone's starting to think, okay, we need barefoot running and barefoot shoes, which is a paradox, right? Um, but uh, this is when the super minimal, super lightweight, very flexible shoes started coming out, you know, zero heel toe offset, uh, zero millimeter heel toe offset. Um, and uh, these were just, everyone, everyone was scrambling to, to make the best barefoot shoe, you know, in quotes possible. Um, and at the time, Saucony thought, well, uh, and I'm saying Saucony in, in, in a, yeah, as a third party because I wasn't uh, in, in the company at the time, unfortunately. But, <laughs> um, but uh, so the focus was, well, how do we take this very popular trend and make it uh, borrow aspects from this trend and from this research to make a shoe that's more accessible to everyone? So what you see in the Kinvara, the original Kinvara, it's a low stack, but it's not almost nothing stack. Um, it's a four millimeter heel to toe offset. It's not zero millimeter. Um, it's lightweight, but it's not uh, a coating of paint on your the bottom of your foot. Um, and it basically took some bits and pieces of what um, designers were starting to think about in the barefoot running trend, but made it more accessible so more people could, it, it was you know, the, the gateway drug essentially into minimalism uh, for, for lack of a better term. So, it, you know, in my mind, you know, it always, it always became, you know, the, the Kinvara, the idea of the Kinvara was always this kind of emphasis toward making something that's taking a popular trend and democratizing it and making it more accessible for more people. So hopefully you start to see where the, the path I'm traveling down. And, <laughs> and enter in Kinvara Pro. Right. So, so, so tell us, yeah. I guess that, yeah, in that, in that vein. So then what is this all stealing from? I, I could probably take stabs <laughs> at it, but I, of course, have yeah. here so fast forward, actually so, so fast forward, maybe <laughs> 10 years or so, uh, minimalism is gone, maybe not gone, but it's minimalism is a very minimal, uh, it, you know, thought in, in a lot of people's minds and uh you know the the original four percent um vaporfly comes out um now this you know has exploded and every every footwear manufacturer is making what you know we're calling a quote-unquote super shoe right so a, a highly resilient highly compliant um low density foam um usually but not exclusively with a plate often carbon fiber plate um uh and you know the, this has been a really huge trend of um, of the you know the past you know four or five years, and it, you might be thinking in your mind, well, wait a second, didn't Saucony already try? Didn't we already try to make a a um, everyday you know or a um, 
a more accessible uh, carbon fiber super shoe? Uh, the answer is yes. It was the Endorphin Speed, right? Which became one of the most popular shoes. I don't know if I could say ever, but um, it, it's uh, it's it's an extremely popular shoe that that you know tested well, sold well, um, and and it worked well for a large number of people in a large number of uh, situations. Um, now I'm saying a large number because I know Nate. You know I th- believe you might have not loved the Speed One slash Two, um, and I believe the answer was uh, related to stability. Um, and I think um, that yep. might have been if 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 there was a complaint, which was very infrequent, probably it was really related to stability. Um, so uh, I think we've addressed a lot of that in the Speed Three. Um, but we, we tried to say, which is funny. You know, now, yeah. now you make me happy now that you did it for me. And then some people are like, oh, I for missed the one personally. and the two. It felt, <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> but, um, but, but, but we, you know, around maybe two, three years ago, we started to think, well, if we started from scratch and said, how would we make a, plated super foam style super shoe um, for the everyday runner at everyday training paces, how would we go about um, tackling that design challenge? Um, and that's kind of the the impetus behind the the name and the kind of uh, story around uh, the Canvara Pro. That makes a lot of sense from a linkage between the two names because, like I said, you look at the shoes and they're so different. You have huge stack, you have stiffness, you have a plate, you have like all the things, whereas the other one, like you said, was so minimalist, but it was more of the origin story of the shoe versus the actual structure. I mean, the outsole is kind of similar. I would say maybe that's, you guys, you'll kept that kind of, you know, ribbed EVA exposed um Matt's going to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) Sell, sell. I have 50 miles on this shoe right here. I have 50 miles. I have created definitely my own poster loud heel bevel. No, it's doing fine. So tell us a little bit about, because this is one of those, we actually talked about this topic last week too, or I guess it won't be last week at the, whatever, the buy sell episode that we, that we released. So this is one of those that has a really high stack height, 42 millimeters in the heel and 34 in the forefoot. Um, so it's going above that 40 millimeter mark. You talk about you wanted to start from scratch and develop a shoe. How how did you actually go about tackling that question and what sort of like testing did you go through to create the shoe that you did? And um, maybe you can give me the evidence that I want to to buy the idea of a f- f- more than forty millimeter. Not that I'm a that, not that I'm super hard sell on it, but I'm just like, hey, show me it's worth it. Um, so I'd love to hear about your development process for the Kinvara Pro. Yeah, that's a that's about I think thirty minutes worth of answering <laughs> on, on that question, but uh, <laughs> but I love it because I'm planning on talking about all of that anyway. So um, <clears throat> just just stop me Great. when you've heard me speak enough and, and break it up. But uh, so, yes. So so what are the design characteristics that we're thinking about um, when starting from scratch? Um, You mentioned um, the stack heights um, and in particular, the eight millimeter offset, Um, given the fact that it has, but I should have mentioned, um, you know, power run PB uh, directly underfoot uh, and it has a a chassis or a carrier of power run um, 
underneath the plate or essentially along the bottom um, of the shoe. So um, those materials, uh, in particular power on PB being so compliant, the eight millimeter kind of just static measurement of offset um, really ends up feeling a lot closer to a four millimeter offset um, just due to the fact that it's such a highly compliant material. Um, so, you know, I, I should be better about saying a static offset versus dynamic offset. Um, so, uh, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, so that's, that's one um, particular uh, design feature. Um, one is a perfect example why I don't think EVA is going to go away anytime soon. Um, and you see a similar idea in the Tempest and that we can take the differences in the mechanical properties of these different foams uh, and use them to our advantage. So in particular with the Convara Pro, uh, the, um, the wide template, so essentially the, the outline of the bottom of the shoe, uh, along with the... Um, slightly less compliant um, and a little bit heavier and higher density, I should say, um, uh, power run on the bottom, uh, those two things kind of combine to create kind of a more stable uh, platform, um, which uh, for either a fast runner running slow or for a slower runner just running at their typical pace, um, it's going to provide a, a shoe that should, be, should have a very stable ride. Um, and what I didn't mention between these two great midsoles, or these two great foams, is a uh, carbon fiber plate. Um, and this is a three-quarter length, um, essentially three-quarters of the length of the uh, shoe. Yep, so for those of you just listening, Nate's holding it up. Um, and uh, what, what that essentially means is that there's no carbon fiber plate directly under where initial contact would occur, uh, meaning for most cases, heel strike. So uh, what that's ensuring is that it's going to be really, really soft on initial contact. Um, but you still get essentially you know, midfoot through toe off uh, all the benefits that you would expect and, and the ride and sensation that you would get from a typical plated shoe. Cool. And so you have the combination of these two foams, a plate, stack height. What led you to making those decisions of how much to put in of each? Um, and how, you know, did you, you talk about different speeds of stuff. Like how did you land on, was, I guess, was your decision for the amount of foams dependent on what the testing showed you with, with the different speed testing or what did that look like? Um, yeah, you, usually they're, they're running in, in combination or in parallel. Um, where you'll be kind of testing as changes are made and then make changes and then go back and test. So it's never just sit and wait for a result. Um, usually you're trying to get information as early as possible um, to to move along in parallel. Um, but uh, usually uh, the one of the bigger compromises is you pay a penalty in terms of weight. Um, so you can make a more protective or a more supportive shoe um, but you pay that penalty, um, usually in terms of, you know, now you're carrying more stuff on your foot. Um, and usually that just is a, is a penalty in terms of weight. Um, so that will have uh, some repercussions or not, um, you know, depending on the design of the shoe. Um, and you know, we see that in kind of the testing that we did um, and the product that we'll, we'll talk about you know, very briefly. Great. <laughs> Man, do you have any questions on that part so far? Yeah, I don't. I have one bubbling in my mind, but I'm not sure if it's <laughs> totally on topic. 
Let it fly. It's a little, Let it, it fly. relates a little bit. Do you want to like go yeah. for it? Or? Come on. Yeah, I guess my question is so what's because we're seeing a couple shoes like this. It's just, just starting to come out, but the the combination of two foams where you've got usually more, I guess not traditional. We got these these now special EVA foams combined with some of these what we would call super foams, right? As mentioned. Is there a term for how the foams interact with each other? Does that make sense? Because there's got to be di- – there's different properties I'm assuming. I might be totally off. If, if you had a full slab of Power Run PV versus a full slab of Power Run, right? So, But you've seen – and then obviously I can understand – my assumption is you put – like Corey mentioned this. You put the Power Run on the bottom because it provides a more stable foundation, right? It's inherently like stiffer foam, right? But – is there they're going to they're going to react very differently to that amount of foam with those two versus one of just each correct is there a term for how they interact has anybody looked at that or is it just kind of this is not important does that make sense uh, i would definitely not say it's not important yeah. but um it's i don't think anyone's coined a term for it yet you should do that <laughs> <laughs> we'll use it and make sure to footnote you <laughs> i mean we we can talk about it from um like from okay, the, got it. the the compliance and stiffness perspectives of each foam and and what we look at but there's i i don't think that there's a term for it to to answer that question i feel like it'd be like shared compliance or like co-compliance would be just the easier way to, to do it because that's what I'm, I'm seeing these shoes and going oh that's interesting these have a place but i don't know how to explain how they might be interacting and what what change with it It feels great or right? it's a very unique right it's different than either one of the full ones i just you know i'm just curious if anybody's coined that and i'm sure that you're seeing that based on what i'm hearing in, in terms of um in terms of uh testing you know our our impact tester doesn't really care what's underneath it um, so we can quantify the the total effect of everything that's underneath the the um, you know the endpoint as uh, as load and displacements are being measured. Um, but it, it would you know we'd have to think about how we actually stack up the the individual components contribution to that final force displacement. You know, banana. <laughs> <laughs> banana. So are we agreeing that we're going to call this co-compliance or do you want to share compliance? I feel like this needs to be a group decision. So we're talking about this. Co-compliance yeah, works. I like, I like it. You heard it here first, folks. This was a, a, a joint, joint decision. Entirely. I, I would say that co-compliance is most important under human. Um, to, to Corey's point, looking at it mechanically, you can get results, but it's, it's not the full picture. Right. So I think maybe on on person like on human testing kind of a question I have in relating to the design of the shoe and kind of some of the things you've referenced about like democratized innovation in the testing that you did to develop this shoe um who did you find that it really benefits like when is it a shoe and what does benefit mean in the case of the Kinvara Pro I think those are my two questions who does it benefit and what does benefit mean based on the testing that you've done in your lab on person what what a wonderful question that's um <laughs> you didn't really even feed co- me that one you know, I, I came up with that on that. my own thank you for teeing yeah. that up I'll, I'll, I'll talk I'll talk a little bit about the specific testing that we did um, and then I'll give you my conclusions that will answer the first part of that um, based on the data that we captured. Um, 
so what we did um, is we uh, quantified running economy. Um, so just for a throwback to episode 96, um, we look at um, with a, a de measurement device called the metabolic cart, um, we quantify oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production. Uh, the ratio of those is called the respiratory exchange ratio. Um, that feeds into a formula that can predict um, the amount of energy expended um, by in this case, the runner, um, while they're engaged in a particular activity. Um, so we quantified running economy um, during two different speeds uh, in two different shoes uh, for a cohort of um, different athletes. Um, and I say athletes, what I really mean is just um, individuals, um, not necessarily our elite athletes um, or our professional athletes. Um, so we had uh, uh, all of our testers come in for two uh, different testing sessions on different days, um, and we had them uh, run in two different speeds, uh, one of which I'll call uh, comfortably hard. Um, so it's uh, not beyond your threshold pace, um, but just a little bit slower than that. Um, so um, not uh, for that being a very important threshold beyond which it's, it's difficult to quantify the amount of energy that a runner is consuming because it's steadily climbing uh, because you're kind of beyond your, your anaerobic threshold. Um, and also we had those same runners run in a speed, what I would like to call uh, just your cruising pace or, a, a, you know, you might call it recovery pace uh, for, you know, a, someone, you know, post a workout the day after a workout, maybe. Um, or, you know, for a newer runner, it might just be their pace that they run in, that they run at all the time. So it's kind of the comfortable cruising pace, and then this pretty hard but not beyond your uh-oh pace. Um, and we had uh, all of our testers run in uh, the Endorphin Pro 3 um, and in the Kinvara Pro, and they did that, and they counterbalanced or, um, you know, we, we alternated uh, which shoe was first and which speed was first uh, uh, across the days and across all of our testers. Um, and uh, just for a, a frame of reference to put this particular cohort, um, uh, you know, just to put it in context, uh, the average speed for our uh, faster pace of the two was a little over seven minutes per mile. And the um, average easier or kind of closer to recovery pace uh, for this cohort was just uh, a little bit faster than nine minutes per mile. So, so between enough that to give seven and a, nine... Yeah. Yep. So they were either at that closer to nine or closer to seven. Um, and again, every person was different. And I think that's a, a unique characteristic of this particular experiment um, that, uh, you know, is is maybe more interesting to us as a footwear manufacturer than necessarily what a, a research institution, you know, in, in academia might do. Um, because what we're looking for is a pace that's unique to that individual. Um, so rather than trying to find... Uh, you know, whatever your power analysis said, 18 testers uh, that can all run faster than six minutes per mile. Um, and they can do it in three different shoes on two different days. And they don't drop out of the study halfway through and they're not in a competitive racing season. Um, yeah, it, it, it becomes pretty difficult. I think I see Matt uh, thinking about his experimental methods right now for He's his PhD. And <laughs> power analysis is a, uh, yeah, power analysis is a trigger phrase for I'm me sorry. right now, just FYI. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Um, but, um, 
So for, for that, we, we did that for a very particular reason. Um, we wanted to make sure that it was applicable to a wide range of, of individuals. Uh, so what we wanted to do is not uh, call EasyPace a number, but we called EasyPace a feeling. And that feeling is unique and specific to every single, ch- every single tester that came through. Holla, that's great. <laughs> also, these people are me. You're just ta- the people you brought in are me right now. So this is great. Keep talking. I want to hear it. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. I want to hear what um, happened. Uh, uh, another thing. Some are some are even slower. <laughs> no. Ouch. Self-selected is so important. Yes. <laughs> that's good to hear that from a consistency standpoint. Not to bring up my traumas in the PhD, but that's one of the challenges you run into. Is okay. So this is individual. How do you standardize that? And the fact that we can actually standardize an effort level of our feeling is great because we finally have that answer because we know that that pace will vary incredibly. So the the next follow up is okay. How do we standardize this to make that more consistent so we know the data that we're getting is actually reliable or valid? So that's it's great. Um, and and another thing that we didn't specifically do that uh, a lot of researchers do in this kind of realm uh, is we did not control for the weight of the shoe. Um, And we do that because, well, uh, the weight of the shoe is in and of itself a design characteristic of the shoe that we are interested in testing. Uh, As as I mentioned earlier, I think in a specific uh, response to one of Nate's questions, um, we are adding more foam for a more supportive, more protective, more stable environment, but we're paying that penalty in terms of added weight. Um, and you know, we've you, know, you we can cite a couple of different papers uh, over the years that have uh, attempted to quantify the um, penalty that you pay in terms of added energy expenditure per unit amount of weight added to the shoe. Um, and it's usually around one percent for every 100 grams of uh, dead weight. I'll say. Um, because we know that not all weight is created equal. Um, but uh, yeah, so we what we really wanted to do is quantify um, in part how much penalty are we paying for, if at all, are we paying for this added weight and more supportive environment? Yeah, that 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 word dead weight is is worth repeating because it's you know it's it's not part of the design if you're just adding it in, in lead pellets on the back of the shoe, but it is built in. And for this scenario too, you know, the question that, a that someone like me, if I was going to come buy a shoe, I would want to know, do I do better in that shoe as it is for like, if I was going to come into a Saucony store, let's just take, keep all, everyone else out of it. But if I was going to come to a Saucony store, I'd want to know which shoe is going to be the best for me. Not is this shoe better for me as long as the weight is is equal. So I do like for the, especially for the development side on your end, like that's that's a big benefit of a of the way of you know developing a shoe. You can see what it is for what it actually is instead of you know equalizing some stuff. And those both have values in different ways, but um, that's that's actually super helpful to hear. Cool. So what did you find? Yeah. So. Drum roll. <laughs> um, so what we found uh, at the faster pace, so again, faster pace is specific to each individual. Um, it averaged out to around seven minutes per mile, but some people were faster, some people were slower, but it was still fast for them. Um, what we found was that the Endorphin Pro 3 was uh, 2.4% more economical uh, than the Convara Pro, um, which... Um, 
Yeah, it, uh, you know, whether or not that's surprising to you will kind of depend on your background and your experience, but um, it's a shoe that's designed to go fast and it's uh, your your running economy is reduced or your running economy has improved um, when you're running in the Endorphin Pro 3 relative to the Convara Pro. Um, but what's interesting, dare I say fascinating about our experiment is that the easy pace so the approaching nine minutes per mile on average for our cohort, um, there's no statistically significant difference in running economy between the Endorphin Pro 3 and the Convara Pro. The Convara Pro is a full two ounces heavier than the Endorphin Pro 3. Um, so we could talk about why that might be, but it's, it, it, it's a pretty, it's a very interesting uh, finding in my opinion. Yeah, and I'm I'm curious too. Before they even go into their thoughts from it, for you, Matt, hearing that kind of just what's your reaction to that and your thoughts about what that what that means, and then we can they can tell us why we're wrong. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> I I think it actually validates a it validates and opens it it's how do i say this it it validates something that i think we were thinking about but also brings in a whole new piece and i think the concept is understanding that shoes really are tuned to different paces right in terms of how things are it's kind of one of the things we kind of caution people with hey should i be training in this super racing shoe i was like yeah i, I get this point you could i don't think it may not be the best option for you at easy training paces. It's it's designed and meant to go at a, a faster effort, right? It's like, again, the same analogy with the, the race car, right? Could you take it to the grocery store? Sure. Is that really the most, the, the most efficient thing? I don't know about that versus knowing, hey, the benefit that you're going to get from a racing shoe compared to this – what do we want to call this? Not a hybrid, right? What would you – how would we define this? Every everyday plated, yeah, sure. Everyday plated, this this combination, right? To know that they actually aren't different at easy paces might make you go, well, what might be the better option, right? In terms of this one's going to be a little bit more stable. It's actually designed for training, but still has those characteristics that make it a great shoe. That's really, I've got fifty miles in my pair. It's comfortable. It works well. I've used it for easy runs, done some workouts in it, but long runs. It's a great shoe. It, it For me personally, wouldn't be the thing I would choose for race day. I would choose the, the Pro 3. But for training, it's really comfortable and it 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 responds really well. So it makes, it makes sense to me because I think we've seen that in the evidence in terms of some smaller studies at the moment where we've gone, hey, the benefit for some of the super shoes decreases as you start going at slower speeds, right? And we quantified that first for some of those studies as slower runners, right? Or, or runners that run at maybe potential eight, nine, 10, whatever. But to know that, Hey, we can actually design shoes that still give you some benefit over a traditional shoe, but maybe are tuned a little bit better for you. Makes, makes sense. And I think that I hadn't, I thought about it more as the runner's speed, not how is the shoe responding to them, which I think is the more important question. And probably, I guess, I don't know, vice versa. Yeah. Did that make sense? <laughs> yeah. I think one of the quick reactions I have, and then I, I want to hear y'all's, y'all have thought about, you, you've you've had this data for a long time, so you've sat and you've thought about it and you've ruminated over it. I think one of the things for me is is even a conversation that we had with Jeff about, like, why not train in these things all the time? And I think that does also, in these things, referencing 
uh, a super shoe that has all um, only Piva based foam because it's the most, you know, energy returning type material. And so if you take a shoe that isn't necessarily that and you have a similar running economy at a slower pace, that kind of brings that whole conversation back into the fold and thinking about like, yeah, you don't necessarily need to be training in that to get as much running economy benefit um, in, you know, in a shoe like that compared to something else. But what, yeah, tell, tell us what, what y'all have thought about curious. I also think about race day for a lot of people too, but that's a whole yeah. other part. Um, uh, well, I mean, you, you both have made a, a lot of comments that I think are pretty consistent with how we think about it, including some verbiage that's almost verbatim taken from uh, write-ups from the past uh, couple of months. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I think, uh, I think maybe I would, I would uh, follow up those comments with uh, addressing literally the first question you asked me about the Canvara Pro, which is, um, I, I believe it was the first, I don't know, I'm, I'm trying to remember now, but um, who, who is it good for, um, right? Yep. And I think um, based on the evidence that we have now, granted, um, running economy is not the only thing that matters. There are a lot of other characteristics that may dictate when, when a shoe should or should not be um, you know, best suited for a particular context. Um, but you know, in, in my mind, what, what the data here are saying is that the Canvara Pro is kind of tuned especially for this easy slash recovery pace. Um, so what does that make it for? Well, in my mind, it makes it for any context in which slower running may be preferred. Um, so that could be for those new to running that are trying to avoid an overuse injury by not overdoing it. Um, it could be higher volume runners who just need an option for their easy days. Um, it could be first-time marathoners or for anyone for whom... Um, there's no difference between your race pace and the kind of your everyday pace or the pace that which you run at almost all the time. Um, <laughs> uh, or for anyone that's looking for just a, a product that they're willing to sacrifice a little bit on um, speed for just a more supportive, protective uh, environment um, or for, you know, dare I say, a more stable uh, ride. Uh, so really, it's it's not for slow runners. It's not for fast runners. It's not for elite runners. It's it's especially it's 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 for potentially everyone, depending on the right context, right? So as Matt says, it's a tool. It's the the right tool for the right context. In thinking about what you said in terms of your testing protocol, you didn't test based on speed. You tested based on effort. And I think that was where my conclusions for myself would come in. Like, when would I, you know, based on that, if I were one of the subjects in your study that showed that ratio of benefit, then I would be using this again for maybe my long runs that I'm just out there just to get mileage in and that easy pace, um, easy pace runs. And then even, you know, one of the things I want to do this year is I don't want to race a marathon anytime soon, nice. to be honest, because that's just a lot of work. But I do want to run, we have a, we have a 24 mile trail around Stevens Point and I want to pretty maybe this fall maybe next spring depending on how i'm doing but i want to just run the whole thing with no no regard to to running fast and like this makes me think oh, maybe that would be the shoe i'd pull out to to do that in um just because that would be what you were talking about where it's not a hard effort but it is a long distance and it's just wanting to remain as economical as possible at that easier pace so um yeah, and I was thinking about too about the people who want to just go run a marathon and not necessarily race a marathon. That's that's where it was sitting for me too. So, any other thoughts, Matt, from you? Yeah, that that answered it. And it's a hundred and eighty dollars. 
$180. Yeah, we didn't even talk about price. No, why would we? We don't care about it. Um, we, yeah. <laughs> we design product, not the price point. But it does yeah, fall right. into the conversations we had prior about, well, you had prior. We weren't involved with them, although it feels like sure. we were. <laughs> there you go. Um, You're involved in spirit. It, it, we always have you on. It falls into the commentary around, you know, who, who are these shoes for? Well, not everyone wants or needs a, a shoe north of $200. That's, that's a lot of money. So that goes into accessibility, right? So we, we you hear of terms like sustainability, speed, performance, all this stuff, but accessibility is also something really, really important, especially in today's market. So that makes sense, right? Why, if you can get something that's really tuned to where you are as a runner or what your need is, again, using the car analogy, do you really need to Go like again. If you're racing, great, awesome. That the race car makes sense, right? But you're probably still not going to take the race car to the grocery store. If you're the person that your daily run is the grocery store analogy, right? Which is incredibly important, right? We need food, right? We need those base miles. We need that stuff. You can find something that fits that really well at a different price point, and it's actually tuned specifically for that activity. That's something. Why? What? You know? Why? Why would you not choose that? Right? Shoes or tools? It makes sense. Unless, you know, you could still run easy in the the Pro 3, but there's going to be a tool that's going, hey, we designed it specifically for this. So, and it's accessible. This this might be our last question on, on this shoe. Thank you for sharing all of the... It, it's fun to get a behind-the-scenes look, I think, for us and for, for the people who listen to this, just to hear how did a shoe get developed. I think that sometimes we try to... I know and us too, we try to make guesses as to what, what were they trying to do here? Um, even with the relationships we have with y'all and, and the other companies, we don't always know the story and the, uh, from, from y'all, the, the science side of the story, you know, how are you looking at people's um, perceptions of a shoe and how are you looking at the science and the running economy, all that. So it's, it's fun to hear that. Um, that's another uh, buy or sell thing we talked about last week was training in plated shoes. Here we have a kind of a shoe design for daily training. Um, what are y'all's perspective on always training in a plated shoe? Um, and both maybe speaking from a Saucony philosophy, but also y'all, like where where are you at um, in in that conversation? And then we'll we're already. 20 minutes over what we try to do. So we can wrap it up after that. But um, it was totally worth it to me. But <laughs> it is for me I too. Le- I am learning so much, which is always <laughs> awesome. And that, which is normal to have when Andrew and Corey are on. But <laughs> so, yeah, what's your perspective there? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll answer uh, for, for the both of us. I, I believe pretty, I, I can say that pretty confidently. Um, yeah, I, I think we almost intentionally didn't answer it. Um, we, we don't prescribe. Um, what we tried to do is to design um, and test and understand these, you know, mechanical tools that we're producing. Um, but we leave it to 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 people like you, um, to to everyone, you know, to the coaches, to the athletes, to the clinicians, to to make that decision for themselves. Um, if you choose to do so, we believe we've created a great solution for that. Um, but we don't make specific prescriptions. Um, I think that's a, uh, that's a diplomatic way of putting it. <laughs> Anything you'd want to add, Andrew? <laughs> it, <laughs> no, that was the perfect, uh, di- diplomatic answser. I, um, it, well, true, entirely true. Um, I do think that we we have this question and this commentary in the office all the time. Um, 
you know, people ask us all the time and nobody is really happy with that answer. Um, unfortunately, but at the same time, we, we are, we are very much like you all, we want to wait and, and see and have better answers in pocket, um, and have better research in pocket. Uh, I will say at first, I, I, I'll be really honest with, with you and the listeners. I, I wasn't a big fan of it. I think you should be cautiously optimistic and figure out what's going on before you just dive into all your miles with a, with a plated shoe. Um, and I've been coming around more, um, to the idea of it just purely anecdotally. Uh, but yeah, going back to the diplomatic answer, we don't, we don't have a perspective on it. Do you, do you think from a practical side of Saucony future development, will all of your, will like the ride, the triumph, are those all going to become plated shoes? Is that like oh, the God, philosophy no. or is they're going to, you're always going to have non-plated options with yeah, Saucony. Just, no, I, always and never are hard words. I get that. But. Yeah. We never speak in absolutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, I would very much bet the farm <laughs> on the answer would be no there. Uh, we, we make different rides and plates are a big part of rides. Um, not the shoe ride, obviously. Uh, and (laughs) just much like the EVA question, um, you, you need to have different flavors for different folks. I, I think that's, that's the best way of putting that. Cause I totally am with you. And we actually had this conversation where we were like, I don't know if people should be training. And now we have tons of great training shoes and shoes that people train in all the time like the speed three it has a nylon plate but people still love training in that shoe right we're but at the same time i think people need to understand what the purpose of a plate is and that is to add longitudinal bending stiffness to make modifications to the right of the shoe and i think if there are some people that just need an inherently more stiff, be it stiff compliant, stiff longitudinal bending stiffness wise, that's not any different from adding an orthotic into a shoe or adding a post or adding. It's just another way of, of doing that. So I think some people are going to need it. Some people are not. And it goes back to what our students hate. And I was laughing earlier when you said this is it depends on the person, right? There's no straight answer. There are going to be people who, you know, actually they probably need a plated shoe for their daily miles. It just works. And there's going to be other people that go, you shouldn't run in a plated shoe because it doesn't work for you. But we can't make absolutes because that takes away how individual people are. So yeah, that makes sense. It's not about we're going to put play in every shoe or take it out. It's how do we make tools or how, like, as you mentioned earlier, how do we create solutions for problems? And that doesn't mean that you apply the solution to all the problems. It just means that that solution works for one, maybe two problems, I think is the kind of what, what I would add, but basically you just said. And that's great. Cause I asked that question because people including myself, like see a design choice within a company. I'm like, is this the direction they're going? And so I like, I wanted to give you the space to kind of, I, I didn't know exactly what your answer would be. I figured I knew what it would be, but um, just being able to say, no, this is one solution to one potential problem. As Matt was just saying, you, you, I think the other you guys interesting know thing, us well enough by now. That, <laughs> <I know. laughs> it's true. I'd be shocked uh, if you thought that yes. my answer would be yes. We're putting plates. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> I think I think two other quick things. Our full review is going to come out on this shoe at some point where people get all of our thoughts from our actual testing, so I don't want to go into that now. But I, I do think it's it's worth saying 
kind of a, a couple things. One, this is a shoe with a plate. It's not your, it doesn't mean that it's faster because it has a plate in it. Plates aren't, again, as Matt just said, that's not what plates do um, only. That's like maybe a small fraction of what they contribute to, but it's all within a, a big um, soup. The second thing is that just because this shoe isn't as economically friendly at faster paces as the Endorphin Pro 3 doesn't mean you can't run a little bit faster. And I've done workouts in this shoe and I have liked it because my warm up is really nice and easy and it feels good. And then it does pick up just fine for those faster things. But just because it doesn't have the same running economy benefit as a super shoe doesn't mean you can't do workouts in it. Uh, but that'll, that'll come out in our, in our review as, as well over time, but figured it might be worth throwing that out there. No, I appreciated that. I think that goes back to what I was trying to say before about super shoes, not being approachable. Um, that's, I think that's a misconception. Um, I think that there, we need to add more words in there. <laughs> Much like Matt is, is coining terms and phrases for testing, I think we need to create some more categories because uh, I think people think super shoe and they think marathon racing shoe for only the hyper elite. And, and that's, that's just not it. Thousands and thousands of people run marathons every year and they're not all running them at sub five minute mile. So we, we just need, we, we need to provide more product. So, and I'd love to hear what you, you all think about the product too. We can do that. If, when we hand yeah, up, we'll do that. Like. <laughs> yes. I, I would, I would like to add that even though like this is the first time in history that people have been super interested in racing flats and you have people that are running five hour marathons, running them in endorphin pro threes and elites and things like that. And so what I hope and I'm kind of regretting right now, and this is part of the learning experience, is going, did we create fear in people going, oh, you know, you're not running this pace. Maybe you should rethink, you know, what your shoe choice is. And that's really – that was not the intention. It was concern about not understanding what what is going on. So I think that is a great way of putting – there's more words that need to be added into there is that if – you know what? If you are a five-hour marathoner and you love the endorphin elite and it feels great for you, go for it. Right. That we don't want to do this. It's just asking the question like if you also keep in the back of your mind going, hey, this is a tool. How is there any variation of how I might respond to this versus something else? Right. Would a Convara Pro be better for me or does the Endorphin Elite feel great? And this is my choice for Marathon Race Day. Or am I finding that the the Convara Pro is more comfortable? Right. That's it's it's as you mentioned, creating solutions for problems and making products that actually match those solutions so people can have options to go, you know what? You know what? I feel okay. Like I, I know at, re- at my pace, these are both going to do great. And right now this one's feeling a little bit better. I'm going to be that more confident to, when I do this race tomorrow. And because that's the ultimate thing, right? Is making people confident, making them enjoy this, right? So that makes total sense. Entirely. I, you know, the 2021, no, the 20, yeah, the 2021 Boston Marathon, the person that came in last before they closed the clock was in a pair of super shoes. Now you can glean a, a lot from <laughs> from that data point, uh, but it does it folds right into what you were saying, Matt, in, in terms of okay, well, whether they were in the shoes because they wanted to be faster, or whether they just wanted to feel faster, or whatever the reason was for them picking that shoe choice, uh, we should be able to offer them responsible uh, perspectives to the product. So. Well, Andrea and Corey, thanks so much for giving us all this time to talk about 
Uh, H- what does HG stand for? Sorry. Oh my gosh, I should have answered that. That is, um, I almost don't want to set the record straight on this. Uh, <laughs> it's been so fun to, to, to listen to it. No, um, we just guess I'll, and then, I will, yeah. I'll be honest, it stands for high grade. Um, high grade. High grade, yeah. And I know, <laughs> I've read that, uh, um, I will also admit, it, in, internally we have alluded to it being a holy grail material but that is not an official <laughs> marketing name that's not true that's what bj has has said before yeah you, you audio, can our audio guy yeah you can find it in in chats and stuff <laughs> it's pretty funny uh that's why i didn't want to set it straight there's also I've, I've even heard someone say it stood for mercury which is super creative <laughs> right like going into the element list right sf gases and like wings on heels that's 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 pretty awesome. That's smart. I wish I'd what come up with that. Um, but then Power Run PB probably wouldn't play well into that though for a lightweight phone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> lead. There's a peanut butter base no. too. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. High grade. HG stands for high grade. High grade. Sorry, oh, everyone. No. <laughs> hate to hate to let y'all down. <laughs> no, it's good. We can still call it Holy Grail. So again, thanks for talking to us about the development of that phone. Kind of where you see it fitting in. What are some of the fallbacks and kind of the differences between these films and how they can be used. And then obviously talking about at the end here, the Kinvar Pro. So again, thanks for giving us your Sunday night. If you want to follow, is there, is there someone people should follow you for follow y'all? Are y'all social people where you put on Gosh, like stuff about this or not so much? I don't have a very robust, uh, no <laughs> internet footprint. No, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I probably have the world's lamest Instagram page. You can find me Great. at, uh, Skidmored because <laughs> I went to Skidmore. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, you can find me That's on LinkedIn. Great. That's about it. That's probably why we get along with y'all. <laughs> great. LinkedIn. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again for joining us. And um, as with Doctors of Running, our review for the Convara Pro is going to be coming out. Um, so you'll be able to find that on our website and everything else. As is always the case, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn as well at Doctors of Running. Thanks, everybody. 